Welcome to the Keto Lifestyle Podcast, hosted by nutritional coach Jessica Tai, where we are dedicated to promoting health and overall well being through nutrition, specifically the ketogenic diet. We will provide you with all the latest science in nutrition, interviews with experts in the health and wellness field, and answer all your burning questions so you can find optimal health. This podcast is not intended to be used as medical advice and is to be used for informational purposes only. Please contact your doctor with any and all medical questions. Now here's Jessica. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Keto Lifestyle Podcast. This is your host, Jessica Tai. And as always, I'm happy to be here with you guys again this week. So it feels like it's been a long time since we're I'm only recording these and putting these out every other week now. So um, that extra week in between makes it feel strange, like it's been a long time. <laughs> so it's amazing how time flies, but yet for some reason it still feels like it's been a while. So this is episode number 104, and I have a great interview to share with you today that um, I think will be... Uh, just a lot of really great information. I'm excited to introduce this um, person to my listeners if you don't already um, know of him or have not heard of him. So we'll get right into that here shortly. But before we do, I just have a couple of announcements. Um, since last uh, episode, which was two weeks ago, we have successfully launched the group coaching. Yay! <laughs> so that is going really, really well. It's been, uh, we've had a lot of um, great reaction from you guys and great participation. So thank you so much to everybody who signed up in the intro period and was kind of part of that um, that launch special uh, of getting into the group coaching. That has been super. And then um, we've had several new folks join us just this past week. So that is also exciting. So we um, are actually, I'm getting ready to jump on that group coaching call here in the Zoom classroom in about a half hour. I'm just getting this podcast uh, put out right before I start that class or that uh, coaching call. So if you are interested in being part of the group coaching that I am now offering, um, I am happy to have you sign up for that. You can just go to my website. It is jessicatai.com and you'll get over there and then you can just scroll down the page just uh, just a hair and you'll see the very first highlighted link says sign up for group coaching. You can click on that and that will take you to the sign up page where you can go ahead and get all signed up on that. You can scroll all the way down to the bottom of the page if you would like to um, sign up and then you can also kind of read through um, all of the things that you get in this group coaching. Um, I'm really trying to offer you guys a lot of really awesome things to help you in your health and wellness journey. Um, one of those things is you will be um, able to sign in. You will get a link to sign into my NutriQ system, which um, as a nutritional therapist, we have access to that. We use um, that system, or most of us do. And uh, you will do a NAC, which is a, nutri a nutritional assessment questionnaire. And you will also be able to be able to keep a food and mood journal online that I will be able to access. And then I leave you notes. And I do that pretty often. Um, as my uh, group clients are seeing right now, I, I get in there and I leave you some pretty in-depth notes pretty, pretty frequently. But um, at the very least, I will be doing it once a week. Um, but I'm pretty much doing it every day right now. And um, you, you know, so you'll get to see kind of what you're eating, what my take is on it. And then coupled 
with the symptom burden graph and symptom burden report that you get generated after you do the NAC, um, I am able to kind of help walk you through like why you might be having some of the symptoms you are or why maybe the things that you're choosing to eat are not the things that would be best for you and maybe there's some other alternatives um, or some lifestyle changes that could help you or even some supplementation that could help, um, that could really move the needle. So I've had really great feedback from this already, and I think the my new um, group coaching clients are really enjoying it. It's been fun for me as well. I've only ever done that um, as with one-on-one -on -one clients, so this is the first time I have offered the knack to, to group coaching. Um, but it's been really fun. I'm. It's been really um, energizing for me. It's actually the thing that I look at first thing in the morning um, when I get up. Uh, the first thing that I'm that I'm working on, I should say. It's not the first thing I look at in the morning, but I'm typically on there answering your all's questions and um, putting my comments in the food and mood journals online about 6 30 7 o'clock in the morning so um, it's when I'm kind of like the most chipper bright alert and uh, and really I just get excited about getting in there and kind of getting some of the things that are going on with you guys addressed and answered so anyway so that's fun so you can get signed up for that right now and it is a monthly subscription you can cancel it at any time so you can just go month to month you can decide you know after one month you don't really want to do the coaching anymore or you can say hey you know what I'm loving this it's really helping keep me on track we have a whole community you'll be part of a uh, Facebook group that is a private Facebook group and you can ask questions in there you can ask me questions on the group coaching calls which happen two times a week they are at set times we have Tuesdays at 1 p.m. and Thursdays at 8 p.m. so hopefully you're able to make one or both of those calls every week and you can ask any questions that you want you can um, reach out to me through the Facebook group. And then of course we communicate through the NAC um, or the NutriQ system online. So it's a lot of fun. Um, I think it's really helpful to people and it seems to be so far anyway. So that's great. So that's the first announcement. And the second one I wanted to announce is we do still have some spots available at the second annual Keto at the Cabin. So if you guys are unfamiliar with that, please go to my website again. Um, you can find information about Keto at the Cabin there. and. Um, kind of get you can go ahead and submit to get signed up for that as well it is a one-day event this year so it will be on Saturday March 7th and it is all day we will literally cook breakfast together we will have lunch together and we will cook dinner together and you are going to have the day with six keto experts from all different walks of life it's gonna be really awesome I'm super super excited to do this this year um, these are some of my closest friends in the industry and they are all amazing people so you guys are going to get such a treat so we have Trent Holbert will be there um, he does the fit for the kingdom podcast and he is amazing he's got a brand new book coming out um, so I am sure that that will be there and he will be signing copies of that book so that's super exciting um, we have let's see we have Robert and Crystal Sykes who will be there of course that's team savage um, so they do the you know, they've got podcasts, they've got, I mean, their Instagram is insane. They, they're like everything, keto, health, wellness, bodybuilding, fitness, it's amazing. Um, Stephanie Holbrook will be there. So she is amazing. She also has a podcast. Her Instagram is on fire, all that amazing keto athlete as well and coach. Um, and then we have the awesome Danny Vega, which I'm sure you guys know, Fat Fueled Family, um, 
Danny and Mara. Mara will not be joining him. She has another event that she'll be doing at the same time. Um, but Danny will be up here uh, joining us and rounding out your group of six uh, keto experts, including myself, um, who you get to spend the day with. So it is truly, we've got this set up as a true VIP event. This is not meant to be like for a mass amount of people. We keep the numbers very, very small, um, almost a one-on-one -on -one ratio between the experts and the guests that come to the cabin. So it is a very exclusive event. Um, this is our second annual. Last year was phenomenal. We had such a great time and um, just decided to tweak it a little bit for this year and really emphasize the things that everybody said last year that they loved so much. So you can head over to my website to get more information on that or to register directly, you can go to www.branch, that's B-R-A-N-C-H, hill, H-I-L-L, cabin.com forward slash keto cabin. No spaces, keto cabin. And um, that'll take you directly to the sign up page. So you can get um, that in and get registered for that. Uh, more information will be coming to you after you're registered um, about more specific details and things like that. So of course we'll have lots of free goodies and you'll be well fed and lots of great drinks um, and food and snacks and all that fun keto stuff all day. We've got some, have some local keto companies um, and some of their goodies here for that event and Oh, it's just going to be so much fun. I just am so excited. So I hope that you will join us for that. Okay. And that is all I have. So without further ado, let me get um, to introducing today's uh, guest on the episode. My guest today is Dr. Stephen Hussey. <clears throat> he is a chiropractor and a functional medicine practitioner. He has attained both his doctorate of chiropractic and master's in human nutrition and functional medicine from the University of Western States in Portland, Oregon. He is a health coach, speaker, and the author of two books on health, The Health Evolution, Why Understanding Evolution is Key to Vibrant Health and the Heart, oh, and, I'm sorry, the heart, our most medically misunderstood organ. Dr. Hussey guides clients from around the world back to health by using the latest research and health attaining strategies. In his downtime, he likes to be outdoors, playing sports, reading, writing, and spending time with his wife and their pets. So welcome to the Keto Lifestyle Podcast. I am so happy to have you on here. How are you today? Good. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. And thank you for being here on the podcast today. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm happy to be here. So we were kind of talking a little bit before I started recording, and I'm really excited about some of the topics we're going to talk about today. Um, this podcast, uh, or this episode, I should say, will be released uh, during Heart Healthy Month uh, of February. So um, I always do a lot of talks around heart health in February, and though I am definitely not the expert, so I'm super happy to have a functional medicine practitioner and chiropractor on here who you can really, you really truly are the expert, um, especially having written a couple of books now, one specifically, an ebook anyway, specifically geared toward heart health. So um, I'm happy to have you on here and get into that. But before we get started kind of digging into some of uh, those topics, I would like for you to just kind of tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and uh, kind of what brought you to where you are today. Of course. Yeah. Um, so I guess my health journey kind of started at a, a very young age. Um, at the age of two, my parents told me, uh, or they tell me today, that they, they heard me like wheezing and coughing and having trouble breathing. And so um, 
you know, my dad with his own experience with asthma um, had uh, knew that, or he suspected I had asthma. So they took me to the doctor, uh, I was diagnosed with asthma. And that was really just the start of inflammatory conditions that I had throughout my childhood. So I had um, irritable bowel syndrome. I used to break out in chronic hives all over my body and the doctors didn't know why. Um, I had terrible allergies and I ultimately ended up with the autoimmune disease type one diabetes um, where my body attacked the cells that make insulin in my body. And now I no longer have those. So, um, so yeah, we, from that, we were kind of thrown into the Western medical system and we were reliant on, on that system to help me with these conditions, um, and help me manage these conditions. Um, but I found out that, I mean, as I grew up and, you know, started to be more curious about health, I found that, um, you know, nobody was telling me why I had these. It was just how we manage the symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we give you more insulin and that kind of stuff? And so when I got into college, um, I started figuring out that the way I live my life had a direct impact on the, my ability to manage these conditions. Um, and I'm happy to say now that, you know, all those inflammatory things I had as a child are now gone based on the lifestyle choices I make, uh, aside from the type 1 diabetes, which is kind of collateral damage from, from that inflammation that I had. Um, Mm. but since I'm type one diabetic, you know, that puts me at, you know, two to four times the risk of, of getting heart disease. And so I've, I've kind of really dove into the literature and really wanted to figure out how I could prevent that. Um, and so every time, you know, throughout my, my medical training and all the schooling I've had and my own research, every time I heard heart disease, my ears perked up and I just wanted to hear um, everything I could about that. And so I found some really interesting things, uh, which has kind of led me on my, uh, in the direction I'm going now, as far as my, my, um, my health routine, I guess. Mm-hmm. So one thing I want to go ahead and go back to that you said was, um, you mentioned that type one diabetes was kind of collateral damage from this chronic inflammatory disease that you were diagnosed with. How can you talk a little bit to that? Because I, I, I think that, um, you know, it's so often type one diabetes is talked about like, you know, that it's just genetic, you, you just have it and there's nothing that you could have done or can do. Um, it just is what it is. So can you just kind of expand on that a little bit and kind of help us understand that? Yeah. So I think that, I mean, as far as genes goes, there's this whole, you know, study of epigenetics, which means above genetics. Mm-hmm. And so that basically means that, you know, you have the genes that you're born with and you can't do anything about those, but you can, you know, you can um, influence how those genes are expressed based on the environment you put those genes in. Mm-hmm. Um, and this stuff has been proven by, by many different researchers. Uh, and so what really matters is the environment we're in. And so, you know, I could have had a a set of genes that predisposed me to having an autoimmune disease, but whether or not that actually ever happened would be dependent on um, the way I live my life and the the environment I put those genes in. So Mm -hmm. for me, um, when I think about my childhood um, and and what I was eating, which my parents didn't know any better, no one told them any better. um, You know, I was eating a lot of processed carbohydrates and and lots of um, foods that I don't think are fit for humans. And so that was one of the things that I think created um, an inflammatory state in my body that led to leaky gut because I was eating lots of uh, processed grains and things like that. Um, and when you get leaky gut, then things start leaking into the bloodstream that shouldn't be there. And your body, your immune system gets very confused. It doesn't know, is this something that's supposed to be here and not be here? So let's just attack it anyways. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's definitely an association between 
um, the protein uh, casein in cow's milk um, and the beta cells of the pancreas that make insulin. And so if I was having some milk, which I had a lot of, uh, not that all milk is bad, but you know, in this case, this casein protein, my body didn't recognize it um, because it leaked into the bloodstream undigested mm-hmm. and my body attacked it and then attacked anything that looked like it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it also attacked those beta cells and um, I ended up with type one diabetes. Now, if I think that if I kn- knew then what I know now, I could have reversed it. Um, but now that the damage is done, uh, I'll probably won't get those cells back if, mm-hmm. unless there's some stem cell, you know, cure that's invented or something like that. Um, but yeah, so it, it's really dependent on, you know, I don't think that ever would have happened if I was not eating those foods or not being exposed to those toxins or, or whatever other triggers may have caused that inflammation, uh, mm-hmm. things that I'm very adamant about getting out of my, my lifestyle now. I really um, love that you brought that up and mentioned that because I think, um, what I see, at least in my practice, is people, um, a lot of times, mostly because we're told in kind of the allopathic medicine setting that these certain things are genetic, like type 1 diabetes. And um, if you have Crohn's or you have type 2 diabetes or you, ha- you end up with cancer or heart disease or, you know, whatever it is, um, we're told those are genetic, but we're not told, like, they, they're not telling people what you just explained, mm-hmm. how, yes, you may have a genetic predisposition to that particular um, manifestation of whatever it is that, that you're of your, uh, of your lifestyle, the environment that you're living in, you know, when your body is undergoing the stress and, and these, um, you end up with some kind of chronic disease, you're going to be predisposed to, to it be this one, whether that's rheumatoid arthritis or whatever it is. Um, but that, that does not mean that you have to have rheumatoid arthritis or you have to have in your case type one diabetes. It just means that if your body were to undergo this, that may end up being the way that it presents. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think it's, it's, um, I think it's hopefully it's hopeful for people listening to be like, well, what do you mean? Like, I, I'm not gonna have this just because the last four generations of my family had this particular disease. Um, and the answer is that's right. You don't have to have it. Um, you can change that course of your family history. It can stop right now with you, the listener who's listening to this and now getting this information and you can take that information and now you can go change the lifestyle. You can change the environment that you're living in and change the nutrition you're putting into your body. Uh, Much like you're saying with the casein and having that, you know, basically um, be able to, for your body to then turn on, on something in itself like your beta cells of your pancreas that would then have this issue happening or like for someone else it could be um you know their joints or you know whatever the situation may be so um, i think that's awesome to be able to get that information out there and and help people to realize that we really it's not a it's not a life sentence just because somebody's told you you're predisposed to something yeah that's a good message yeah Um, so, okay. So you are, so I just wanted to really make sure that we touched on that with the type one diabetes. And, um, so, and I, I also like that, you know, that you did mention like your parents didn't know better. I, you know, very much the same in my situation. Um, and most people listening, I'm sure, um, especially if you grew up, um, you know, sixties, seventies, eighties, um, we were, I mean, man, that was the era of prepackaged food and, 
you know, I mean, that was convenience and pop tarts and cereals and, you know, all this stuff that we just didn't know. I mean, we just thought, man, this is great. Like, how, I mean, this is so much easier. We don't have, right, I mean, so we don't easy. have to, <laughs> right. We don't have to kill and process and do all that. We can just get our food right out of a box. So, yeah. um, you know, and it unfortunately has led to all of these things. So can you kind of explain um, how, you know, how you kind of view this as, um, as those type of Franken foods, if you will, and, and kind of our environment has, has led us to where we are. Yeah. So yeah, in, in my book, Health Evolution, I kind of, I outline what I would say are the, the major changes that have happened to the way of life for humans over the last, you know, 10,000 years, but really specifically the last 200 years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we think about things from an evolutionary perspective, like, you know, evolution happens when an environment changes and, and a species evolves. But if that change happens too quickly, there's not enough successive generations to, to actually evolve or change and adapt to that, that, um, that difference. Um, and so if we start looking at the changes that have happened, so we look at the agricultural revolution that happened around 10,000 years ago, which sounds like a very long time, but if we put it in the context of evolution, like, I think the comparison is like if we took, if we put the um, amount of time that humans have been on earth uh, into the, into the time span of one day, um, you know, we were, we were hunter gatherers um, Mm -hmm. for almost the whole of that day. We didn't start farming or agriculture until 1154 PM. Mm -hmm. Um, So really our, our physiology has evolved to, you know, more whole foods, you know, more animal foods, because that we were doing a lot of hunting. Um, uh, but definitely um, not the processed foods that came with the agricultural revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's very interesting that it's, it's very well cited in um, archaeological evidence and anthropological evidence that the ancient Egyptians were a farming culture and they farmed on the banks of the Nile and uh, it meat was a, a rare food for them. Um, and, and lots of fat was a rare food for them. Um, they add a lot of wheat and emer um, and barley and things like that. And when we examine the mummies that we had, that they left around, you know, for us to study, we did mm-hmm. CT scans of them and they had atherosclerosis um, mm. in, in their, uh, in their arteries. So that's just an, an interesting finding. That's very Um, interesting considering if you, but if you went and talked to any doctor right now, they would tell you that that's what you should be eating to avoid those things. And that if you eat animal foods and animal fats, you'll end up with a heart attack. Yeah. And the Cheerios boxes say heart healthy on them and all this kind of stuff. Yes. Um, Which is just processed grains, you know, that's what they were eating then. They were probably more whole, less processed back then, but they still had atherosclerosis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so then if we fast forward and look at to the, the other major changes, you know, we look at, you know, maybe 200, 250 years ago, we get the industrial revolution, maybe even less than that. Yeah, less than that. Um, mm-hmm. And that's when we had this big introduction of these toxins um, into our environment, because we started mining these metals out of the earth that had been deposited there for a long time. So our physiology had never had contact with them. So it never really evolved any way to deal with them. Um, plus all the synthetic um, chemicals and toxins that we've been exposed to. Um, and then I think that, you know, around the turn of the 19th or in the ni- beginning of the 19th century, um, we started to see the introduction of, of processed seed oils. Um, and mm-hmm. so there's this mass production of those and mass distribution of those. And those are the canola oils and the corn oils and the palm oils and the, um, 
um, soy oils and things like that. They, they're called vegetable oils, but I'm not sure why. They're not really from vegetables. Um, they're <laughs> right. from seeds. And those are the, the terrible fats that, that I think we should be avoiding because if you, those are very, those are not natural, you know, like animal fats are natural. Like you, you, that comes straight out of the animal as a fat, like to get a seed oil, we have to process, um, uh, process it a lot, uh, to get that out of there. Even with, um, to some extent, olive oil and avocado oils and things like that. Um, you have to process those to get, to get the fats out of them, but you know, less so than the, the corn and the sea oils and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, so those are the, the, the most natural fats, the ones we were eating for literally hundreds of thousands of years as humans, uh, were those animal fats. Um, and so there's been a lot of changes, um, over the last, you know, in a short evolutionary speaking, short amount of time and our bodies just not, have not adapted to them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So we're seeing, um, I think, you know, it seems, I think to those of us that are in the kind of the health and wellness space, it seems so obvious and so apparent when you mm -hmm. see the rise of these chronic diseases and you see the way that we're eating and, and it's, it's just like a direct correlation, right? I mean, we can see it and we're like, man, this just makes so much sense. Um, why do you think it's so, it seems to still be to me like I said, if we get outside of this sphere that we're in and kind of step out into the real world and start talking to real folks out there, it seems like it's still um, like this little known secret. It seems yeah. like people are still, they're just like, they just don't, they don't understand it. They've maybe never even heard that the things like you just talked about, seed oils, they don't even like, they're like, what? I, I mean, I still buy canola oil. Like I thought it says heart healthy right on the package. Like that's what I thought I'm supposed to be eating. So uh, where do you think the major breakdown is or what can we do to turn this around? Yeah. So just so people know, those oils and like things like margarine and stuff um, were, were originally claimed to be heart healthy because they were found to lower LDL, um, which I'm sure we're going to talk all about LDL. Yes. Uh, cholesterol. <laughs> but um, but the reason that is, is because those are, those are plant fats and there's plenty of research showing that, um, when you eat plant fats, they compete with the absorption for animal fats. Animal fats are cholesterol, plant fats are phytosterol. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they compete with that. So when you eat more plant fats, you get less cholesterol, um, because it's just, you know, you're going to absorb more plants. And so, you know, if we, if we accept the idea that LDL is bad, which I do not, um, then that seems heart healthy. So they were allowed to be labeled as heart healthy when in reality, they're causing all this inflammation and damage. But as to why we're kind of stuck on this notion, I think that there's a lot of things in the way. I think that, um, I think that this idea that, that cholesterol and, um, and fats um, or animal fats uh, cause heart disease was kind of uh, created through some very, um, uh, less than optimal research, I would say, in the 1950s and 60s, and it's just kind of stuck. And I think that what makes it stick is, you know, that you know, if you have this idea that high cholesterol, especially LDL, causes heart disease, and then the pharmaceutical companies can make a drug to lower LDL, that makes them a lot of money. So they want to keep that narrative going. Um, and so they put a lot of money into keeping that narrative going and so do, and, and so, and that also uh, brings in the um, big agriculture companies, the ones that make all the grains and the seed oils and things. They want to keep that narrative going too, because then 
the the message becomes don't eat animal fats eat plant these processed plant foods you know mm-hmm. um and so they want to keep that going too because that makes them more money so i think there's it's not that there's these evil people out there and that they're that there's big conspiracy or anything it's just that when you live in a capitalist society that's what companies try and do and they may not even realize that it's not the best thing they're just trying to protect their bottom line um so yeah right and i would also say that it seems to me like um you know, we're, it's a real easy narrative to keep going because we, you know, we've, I mean, if I remember giving a talk once and I was trying to explain the different macronutrients in food and, um, how the only one that is non-essential is carbohydrates. And, um, this guy just could not, he, he just kept stopping me and he's like, no, wait a minute. So carbohydrates are vegetables and fruits. So you're telling me I don't need vegetables and fruits? <laughs> like, well, actually, like you don't. Like they're non-essential. Then like you need the vitamins and minerals and these vegetables and fruits. But that's not to say that you cannot get them elsewhere, but the carbohydrates are not essential. And just trying to, but he just, it was so, he's like, there's no way. Like we, we have to have vegetables and fruits. Like we have, so I think it's, it's just this mindset, um, right or wrong, that vegetables and fruits, like almost one word, um, how we've yeah. grown up, you know, fruits and vegetables, fruits and vegetables, yeah. that they are so healthy. And anything that comes from, derived from, no matter how you have to get it from them, anything that comes from, anything that has to do with fruit and vegetables is going to be the number one best thing for you. Um, and that's just been so drilled in, into our heads for so many years, ever since yeah. the food pyramid was started. I think it's uh, anything contrary to that is very difficult for people to wrap their head around. Yeah. And, and even like, so we get these, these magazines at the clinic um, for like supplement brands and things like that. And, uh, and um, there was this one article in one of the magazines that was written by you know, it had all these authors that were like, you know, MD, PhD people and everything. And it said, you know, how to get the benefits of a ketogenic diet without um, the harmful effects. And I was just like, what? You know, like, this doesn't even make sense. So I read the article to see what they had to say. And there was all this talk about how, you know, a ketogenic diet will, will you have to eat lots of fat and it's going to raise your cholesterol. But, but ketones are really good for you. And I was just like, okay, let's, let's take a step back here and think about this logically, you know, you're saying that ketones are very beneficial to physiology and how we have to get ketones is by restricting carbohydrates and eating more fat. So that would make me think from a logical perspective that fat must be okay for us, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but, and, but, you know, obviously their, their product, their brand, the supplements they were selling, which I don't get are, are, um, <laughs> are based on the idea that, you know, high cholesterol and animal fats are bad for you. Right. And so they have to write an article that says, oh, ketones are good for you, but this is how we can do it. I don't even know what they recommended as far as getting ketones without, without eating fat. They probably had some exogenous ketones and things like that, which, right. is, which is okay. But, but it's just funny that you know, people are so confused. Even these so-called experts, these really educated people writing mm-hmm. these studies or doing these studies and things. Right. Or you know, even recommending that people are taking in all of these plant-based fats which some can be better than others, like avocado oil, olive oil. Okay, fine. But then you start moving, like you were just discussing, into the realm of, of really these highly processed um, you know, seed oils and people thinking that those are healthy because they've been told they're vegetable oils and um, you know, vegetables are so healthy. So we're back to the same 
you know, thing again exactly. without realizing how much damage they're doing. Cause there is nothing protective about those oils. They are absolutely the exact opposite where, you know, the people just are not, they don't understand, or they've not been told until they hear it from people like you that animal fats, saturated fats, um, you know, coconut oil, who has, which has been attacked, I don't know how many times, uh, you know, and over the years, but how these fats are actually very protective to our cells and we need these fats. I mean, they're, they're responsible, you know, you're either going to build your, your cells with these bad damaged industrial fats, or you're going to build them with these natural whole food fats that are very stable. And we've been building ourselves with for all of this time, right? Exactly. Yeah. We want to build them with the, the fats that are meant for, for um, animals, which humans are an animal. And that mm -hmm. is, that's mainly cholesterol. Right. So that uh, is a great segue into talking a little bit about cholesterol, because that is something that um, I'm sure most people listening, uh, if you tell anybody that you are ketogenic or um, whether you're, or maybe you're not ketogenic, but you just want to eat animal fats and, you know, whatever. And that's the first thing that they're going to tell you is you, you can't do that. You're going to die. You know, your cholesterol is going to skyrocket. You're going to have a heart attack or some other cardiovascular disease or stroke, or, I mean, it just gets really dark, really quick. <laughs> so, yeah. um, talk a little bit about that, um, from a doctor's perspective, like you've obviously studied this, you've obviously have an opinion about it. So give us, give us the dirt, give us the real story. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, we can start at the beginning, which is how this whole mess started. And so um, maybe people may have heard of um, Ansel Keys, who was a researcher who in the 50s uh, came out with his, his six countries study and then his seventh country study, which he did a little later. And basically all he did um, was he looked at data from different countries, uh, food data, and, and found a correlation between um, the amount of animal fats um, and, and fat in general that people ate and uh, in, in some countries and found that they had a, and looked at their um, amounts of heart disease. Okay. And so he said that he found this correlation between the amount of fat they ate and the countries who had, who ate the highest amount of fats had the highest amount of heart disease. However, there's a, there's some huge flaws with this. One is that for some reason, which I'll let people speculate as to why, there was, there were, he only used um, the six and seven countries, uh, or only used six and seven countries in the studies, but there was data from 22 countries available at the time. Yeah, that's a head scratcher, right? <laughs> yeah, so he basically cherry picked the data right. to give him the correlation that he wanted. Also, we have to think about this because this is a type of research called epidemiology, and it's the lowest rung of research. Um, and so the problems with epidemiology is that you're relying on people to remember what they ate because all you're doing is surveying people, asking them what they ate and how much, uh, which is not very reliable. I mean, I could tell you what I ate, you know, two months ago because it's probably the same thing I ate today, but, <laughs> right. uh, but most people can't tell you that. Um, other problems are that um, you're, they report things as far as, uh, they, they're reported as relative risk rather than absolute risk, which is kind of a statistical jargon or whatever, but basically it means that if let's say, um, let's say the result you got was one, um, and then the people who had saturated fat had a 1.5 um, increased risk, whereas the people who didn't had a one increased risk, which is like, who cares, you know, 0.5 difference. However, with relative risk, you report that as a 50% increased risk because it's 1.5, that's 50% more, you know, which is mm -hmm. an inaccurate way of reporting things. 
Um, but there's also the healthy user bias. So people who are listening to the recommendations and eating less fat, um, the recommendations of you know government agencies and things and eating less fat are tend to be the ones who also are concerned about their health. They're trying to do healthier things. So they're also exercising, not smoking, avoiding toxins, things like that, you know, eating whole foods. Um, whereas the people who don't care about their health and they're eating whatever they want tend to have more saturated fat, but they're also smoking, drinking, not exercising, things like that. So you can't really di differentiate between the two. <clears throat> right. um, so that's how this whole thing got started. And it just kind of stuck. Um, you know, this whole narrative that that high animal fat in your diet leads to heart disease and that LDL was the number one marker uh, to mm -hmm. be tracking. However, when we look at um, other research, um, so if we look at people with genetically high cholesterol, um, which are people with familial hypercholesterolemia, mm -hmm. um, what we see is that, so they did a study where they, they tracked a, 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 a certain families who have this trait, this genetic trait um, of high cholesterol um, for the past two centuries, 200 years. And they looked at if they died any sooner or not than other people, and they did not. And they also noted that these people tended to have an advantage when infectious disease was, was common and, and running around um, because LDL, cholesterol, um, the lipoproteins actually um, protect us from, they can bind to bacteria and neutralize them. Um, so there's, there's, they play a lot of roles and that's one of them. Um, mm -hmm. But also there's, there's also a lot of other research where they, there's two studies in particular um, one called the Leiden 85 plus study um, and the other one called the Lothian birth cohort study. Mm -hmm. uh, these are both done in Europe, one in Scotland, one in Holland, I think. And they track these people for one, they tracked them from like the age of 75 to 85. And then in the Lothian birth cohort study, they tracked them. They, these people were born in 1936 and they tracked them um, until their death, I think, you know, 80 years or so. Mm -hmm. um, for the ones that, that survived. Um, and they found, what they found is that the people who had higher cholesterol, um, meaning the LDL or, or um, higher total cholesterol in general, um, they had um, better cognitive abilities as they aged. They had lower rates of heart disease, lower rates of cancer, um, lower all-cause mortality um, than, than the people who had lower cholesterol. Um, so clearly mm. this is doing something for us, right? Mm -hmm. Um, there's these benefits to this molecule. And I think that, you know, speaking evolutionarily, um, that it makes sense that evolution would, would have preserved this characteristic. Um, now I want to talk about how sometimes people go on ketogenic diets or very heavy animal-based diets, which is like carnivore, the trend of carnivore going right now. Mm -hmm. Um, and they see a huge jump in their total cholesterol and LDL. Um, mm -hmm. And that can happen for some people, other people, it doesn't happen. Um, and so people freak out and doctors freak out and say, you got to stop eating this way. You're going to kill yourself, you know? Um, mm -hmm. But looking at one marker, I mean, humans are very complex physical, you know, living things. And to look at one marker and say, this marker is, going to tell you whether or not you're going to die of a heart attack or heart disease in general. Um, it's a very myopic viewpoint mm -hmm. um, because we're so complex. There's so many different things. So we have to really take that in context. And I would even argue that LDL is pretty irrelevant when it comes to heart disease. And I'm going to be doing a talk at, at Keto Salt Lake in April. 
and my topic is all the other things that cause atherosclerosis that's that has nothing to do with ldl um Mm -hmm. because there's been you know there's been studies that show that ldl has no association or an inverse association with heart disease or atherosclerosis um and so we really have to look at, at blood work in context and you know, I'm I'm what I don't know if you're familiar with Dave Feldman, but I'm I'm mm-hmm. what Dave Feldman calls a lean mass hyperresponder. Yeah. So my my total cholesterol is is really high, my LDL is really high, and I've seen advantages from that. Um, mm-hmm. And as long as my triglycerides are normal to low and my HDL is is high, which I will say that the only time my HDL has been in the desirable range is when I um, went carnivore for a while. Um, so that's interesting to me, uh, because mm-hmm. otherwise I, I, it was never where it wanted, where I wanted it to be, but also that we have, um, we look at blood work. We want to see, we have low markers of inflammation. We want to see, we have, um, uh, no insulin resistance. So though we have to really have to look at everything in context. We can't look at LDL and freak out about it. Um, and if it's high, as long as those other things are where we want them to be, then, then I'd say that it, it could be better for us. Right. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's also really important, um, which I, if you listen to Dave Feldman and follow his stuff, then you certainly are um, educating your clients um, or your patients on the particle size as well mm-hmm. and how important that is. And so many times I think people are getting these uh, kind of general um, cholesterol tests run and they're not, none of those explanations are coming from their doctors, mostly because they probably don't understand it themselves. Right. Um, and so then you're, they're leaving scared and thinking, oh my gosh, my LDL is out of control and and not understanding that that doesn't necessarily mean that, um, regardless of what your number is. Right. So, um, talk a little bit about, so you've covered the cholesterol. Hopefully that, um, kind of puts people's, at least puts it into perspective where they can kind of understand, okay, maybe, so if I believe everything you just said and, you know, maybe, maybe, okay, I've been, you know, I've been kind of misled a little bit on cholesterol. So um, what about the people? And we had talked a little bit about before we started this um, recording um, about the people I've had several in my life over the years, as I'm sure you and probably our listeners have as well, who have ended up um, in surgery or in a doctor's office, um, being told that they have some kind of a heart condition or they've had a heart attack or they're having a bypass surgery or, um, whatever. And they will get recommendations from that doctor. And I'm going to assume that they're going to get the standard general recommendation, um, that most of us that have been in that situation have heard, which is, um, you need to go home and eat low fat, avoid animal foods, avoid cholesterol, definitely avoid saturated fat. Um, you know, healthy, healthy whole grains. That's what your heart loves. Um, eat lots of that and, um, you should be fine. Um, why, you know, why is that happening and kind of what's your take on, on that whole message and and what should people really be doing for heart health? Yeah. Well, why that's happening, I think is that, I mean, I was kind of talking, I don't want to get too conspiracy theorists on this or anything, but I, I, I kind of talked about how, you know, we live in a capitalist society and everybody's worried about the bottom line. So everybody's trying to protect the bottom line and what better way to, for the, for the um, big agriculture companies and the pharmaceutical companies to protect their bottom line than to fund the medical schools and influence the curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you, and that's exactly what happens. Um, and so, you know, if they're, if, 
a curriculum that's influenced like that, then doctors don't learn much about nutrition at all. I think that some schools are starting to implement some nutrition in medical schools, but if the vast majority of medical schools have no nutrition training. Um, and mm-hmm. even in, even in chiropractic school, it was, it was minimal. Um, it was, it was way more than, than medical school, but it was, it was not enough that I would say to, to my standards what I wanted, you know? Um, right. And I, I think that's a shock, just that statement alone to a lot of people. And I know I've said it a lot. I have a lot of doctor friends that have said it a lot, but I think most people are just their, you know, their mouth kind of hangs open. Like, what do you mean? Because our doctors, at least in my experience, have act like they know all about nutrition. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And they get a lot of biochemistry, which uh-huh. is fundamental for understanding nutrition. Um, but then that's never really applied to nutrition and how mm-hmm. different foods change that biochemistry. Um, now there's lots of doctors who have gone, you know, above and beyond and they learn it themselves, but, sure. but it's not really there. It's, it's really influenced by, by um, the treatments. And so, you know, I went to school in Portland, Oregon, and there's a chiropractic school, medical school, a naturopathic school. And like, us students would get together um, of the different schools and we would, you know, talk about stuff and, and we'd meet like on a, a quarterly basis. And it was just so interesting to see that we were all learning the same things for the first year and a half, two years. And then in chiropractic school, we started learning about, you know, neuromusculoskeletal stuff and adjusting um, and, and uh, the spine and things like that. And then the medical students started learning about pharmacology, 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 and the naturopathic students started learning about like herbs and, and various other alternative therapies, you know, so it was, it was just interesting to see how, you know, we all got the same baseline education and then we started branching out into the therapies that we were taught to use. Yeah. Um, so it was just interesting. Um, but yeah, so, you know, it, I think that if we look at the heart, um, which, you know, I, I, I've looked a lot into the heart and, I found a lot of research that shows that its preferred fuel source is fatty acids and ketones. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of research that shows that it's, it, when, it, when it's burning primarily those, it's, it, it's very protective for the heart um, because it will always burn some glucose. Um, and every tissue in your body is always burning different metabolic substrates. Um, but the heart seems to prefer these, which is very different than the rest of the body. Because we all know to get into ketosis, to, to make our body or to teach our body how to learn um, or how to uh, burn fats, we have to restrict carbohydrates. Because mm-hmm. if carbohydrates are present, the body will burn those first. And so we kind of have this priority of things that it burns, you know, it goes alcohol, carbohydrates, protein, fats. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't seem to be true for the heart because I found uh, multiple studies that show that it's the preferred fuel source. And I found one study that showed that even when glucose was present in high amounts, when the research put ketones um, there as a substrate, that the glucose utilization of the heart tissue went down 30 to 60% because it wanted to use the ketones instead, Mm. um, which is really, really interesting. And so I think there are reasons for this, but I think that there are mechanisms in place that the heart has that, um, that make sure that it always has enough um, ketones and fatty acids um, to burn as a primary fuel source, because if it doesn't, I think bad things happen. Um, Mm -hmm. and so those mechanisms, two of those mechanisms are one, we look at how fat is, is metabolized and kind of absorbed into the body. It's, it's taken up into chylomicrons and those Mm -hmm. chylomicrons are these huge molecules that store up a lot of fat and they transport them around the body. Um, and that those chylomicrons are put into the lymphatic system, which is kind of like our, 
our drainage system. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that it's, it's curious that that lymphatic system drains into the veins that lead directly into the heart. Um, and yes, they have to go through the heart circulation and through the lungs, but then the, the first place that it's, it's put back out is into the, the heart muscle tissue. Um, so it's almost like the heart's getting first dibs on those, uh, those fatty acids that are absorbed. Uh, yeah. So I think that's one way that that's happening. The other way is that um, I found a research paper that shows that the heart has a direct signaling pathway to fat cells um, that seems unique to it. So it's almost like if, if the heart is having to burn more glucose than it wants to, it, it can send a signal to those fat cells to mobilize fat and get things moving so that there's more fat to be burned. Um, Mm -hmm. so just interesting there. I just think it's really interesting that the heart seems to be this unique organ that burns fat preferentially. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting and completely, I mean, it really kind of completely turns everything on its head then. So if you're, you know, if you do have, um, some kind of a heart issue and you're, um, then told to stay away from fat, like what kind of damage or, you know, what kind of things is this going to bring up for someone that's avoiding fats that yeah. it sounds like the heart wants, it needs? Yeah. So I think that, I think that, you know, this could be one part of what directly causes a heart attack in some cases. So mm-hmm. I've found a lot of interesting research, one from a, a, a pathologist, um, a coronary artery pathologist named um, Baraldi, uh-huh. an Italian guy. Uh, and he basically found that if we look at, he was doing autopsies on, on heart attack victims and people who didn't have heart attacks. And he found all the kinds of curious things. Like, you know, he would do autopsies on someone who died of a car accident and had no previous heart symptoms or heart um, medical conditions or anything like that. If they had like full blockages of coronary arteries mm. um, when he did autopsies. So it's like, okay, well maybe that's not causing heart attacks. So this person didn't have one. And then he also found people who died of heart attacks who had no blockages anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, yet they had a heart attack. And so I think there's a lot of different nuance here, like that, you know, maybe the clot dissolved before he did an autopsy and that kind of stuff. But he also did these studies where, um, where he looked at um, all these people who had um, atherosclerosis and blockages, um, or at least narrowing stenosis of their arteries in their heart. And he found that anywhere there was a 70% or more stenosis of an artery, that the, the heart had built collateral arteries around it um, and bypassed it already. Mm. Um, and so to me, it just makes me think, okay, well, you know, clearly, you know, blockages do happen, but mm-hmm. they're probably not the, the big, they're probably not as much of, or as big a percent of what causes heart attacks as we think. Mm-hmm. And so then I really started digging into what else could cause heart attacks. And I found that I think there's these three imbalances in the body that can drive a heart attack. Um, Mm -hmm. And so one of those is not being uh, metabolically flexible or well fat adapted. Mm -hmm. Another one is having high amounts of oxidative stress, which can happen from burning glucose as a fuel primarily or uh, toxin exposure, things like that. Mm -hmm. And then the other one is an imbalance in our autonomic nervous system, which is basically the system in our body that, um, you know, perceives our environment and tells us if we're in a stressful or non-stressful environment. So we have the appropriate reaction. Right. So if you go back really quickly to the first one that you said, which was, um, the, uh, I'm sorry, word word that again for me that you said, um, being not metabolically flexible. (laughs) Yes. Um, and not, so that is, so then, 
why would you look at it that way, not being able to um, properly utilize fats? Is that, are you looking at it because if you can't properly utilize fats, then we are potentially storing those, um, raising our triglycerides? Not necessarily. So I think that, I mean, that could happen, but I think that triglycerides primarily go up when the liver makes them. Uh-huh. And, and when the, the, the only time the liver makes them is when we have um, too many carbohydrates, especially in the home of fructose. So like mm-hmm. high fructose corn syrup is a huge problem. Yes. Um, but that even, you know, calls into question fruit, you know, which uh-huh. people think is so healthy. Um, so, yeah. Um, so I really wanted you to open that up a little bit because I think when people hear that, they think, see, see, I, that's it. I'm just not metabolically flexible and I can't break down fats. And then if you can't break down fats, you shouldn't be eating fats, but not understanding what you eat is not necessarily what it becomes in your body and understanding that, yes, you think that, and then you're told to eat these things. You eat these packaged foods. They have things like you just mentioned, high fructose corn syrup, and that is immediately turned in. That's what your liver does with it. But they don't make the connection because nobody's ever told them that you can eat sugar and not just table sugar, but high fructose corn syrup specifically, or like you just mentioned fruit, which is, you know, how in the world can you say fruit is not good, but enough fructose is not good. And your liver is going to do what it's going to do with it. <laughs> exactly. Um, and and I, mean, yeah. I mean, how do we think we get fatty liver? It's because well, from eating really, too much fat, duh. <laughs> yeah, right? Or, but or I mean, eating that's... too many carbs that are turned into <laughs> yes, fat right there. Right. Your liver, you know, cause your liver yes. does all this metabolic changing, you know? Yes. Um, and that's a lot for the general public to understand if you're not if you're not studying this stuff and you're, and you're, or you don't have an education in this, it's not, it's not common knowledge, but just trying to help people understand that. And that just because your doctor tells you to eat these certain things, he's not putting two and two together either. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can't always just blindly be like, oh yeah, that, okay, well that's, that's what he said. But then being able, like making yourself aware of these things and then being able to ask those questions like, well, why would you want me to eat that if I just had a heart attack and my liver is going to convert that. And now isn't that bad for me? <laughs> like, like just right. trying to help make those connections and ask those questions. Exactly. Yeah. So that's, um, that is a, that's really good um, explanation. And I like your three bullet points there of um, some of the things that, I mean, I think that's really great. And that really helps to just put it out there. Very simple um, facts for people to yeah, just exactly. think about um, and try to try to research a little more. Yeah. Um, so you have, uh, you have two books. Well, one book that's coming out, correct? The um, Health Evolution. The health evolution is out already. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, so the health evolution, and that is why understanding evolution is key to vibrant health. Um, and then you also currently, if people are interested in more information on heart health, you have an ebook, correct? Yes. Um, called the heart, our most medically misunderstood organ. Okay. And man, that's a great title for that. <laughs> I would say that's very true, right? So where can they go to get a hold of uh, the ebook and your uh, health evolution book? Uh, they're both available on Amazon and they're in um, the ebook is just available as an ebook. The, mm-hmm. the health evolution is available on audio and uh, paperback and ebook. Um, and you can go to Amazon and just search my name or the names of the books, or there's links on my website, which is resourceyourhealth.com. That's awesome. So, um, so you have a website. Are you currently taking on clients? Do you see um, patients only in um, 
your area or do you do like more long distance stuff? How do you do that? Yeah. So I, I mean, I see patients locally. I work in a clinic uh, locally okay. and, but I also do online consulting. Uh, yes. And I am definitely taking clients um, so that I can reach as many people as possible. Yeah. That's awesome. And you're doing a great job reaching as many people as possible, getting out onto podcasts and just getting this information out there. Cause I think so many people are hungry for the information, but there's so much conflicting stuff and they just they just don't really know. But when they can listen to somebody like you, who's very well-spoken, you're able to explain this very, um, you know, it's, it's not too sciencey where people aren't going to get it. I mean, you very clearly know your stuff, but I think anybody listening would be able to be like, okay, I understand what he's saying. And I want to look into this a little more. <laughs> yeah. You got to make it understandable. I got to reach as many people and that's how you got to do it. That's right. Absolutely. Right. Um, and I love that you've put out the the books to help with that. Cause a lot of people want to go listen more and um, kudos to you for doing the audit, the audible version. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. That was a, that was a experience. I had to learn how to record a, a book myself, but it was good. That's awesome. I'm glad you did it yourself, but but um, that is, that's super because I, I mean, honestly, I'll just be totally honest. I, there are very few books that get read by me that are not in the audio version uh, because time is just, yeah. I mean, usually I'm trying to read right before I go to sleep. And um, that is something where I'll get through like a page or two and then I'm done. <laughs> I'm yeah. so tired. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so if I can listen to the audible version, then I can listen anywhere. And I think I'm not alone in that. So I think that's great that you've got that, uh, those different versions out there. So there's a version for everybody. Exactly. Um, so I love that. Okay. And um, is there any place that um, people can find you? Are you out there on social media? Yeah, definitely. Um, a bit reluctantly, but yes, I'm on social media. <laughs> I'm right there um, with you. <laughs> yeah. So I'm on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. It's just Dr. Stephen Hussey, Dr. Stephen Hussey. Um, and so they can find me there, message me there. I, I try and post really useful content on there, not just, you know, uh, here's my life, but, you know, really educational so that people can use um, to apply to their life. And then also my blog on my website. Um, I feel I try and really get good information on that as well. Okay. That's awesome. And where are you based out of Stephen? Where's I, your practice? I am. I live outside of, uh, Roanoke, Virginia. Oh, okay. All right. Great. And I know you said you'll be at, um, Keto Salt Lake. So that's yeah. awesome. So I will see you there. <laughs> awesome. I'll be at KetoCon as well, speaking oh, there. So. Okay, awesome. So yeah, those are some fun things. And I, I love doing that stuff. I actually met um, Dave Feldman on the Low Carb Cruise. Cool. Um, so yeah, it's always good. It's always fun um, to meet some of these people that you listen to and you've learned so much from. And then you get to meet them face to face. And it's just always a good time. So yeah, if any of you all fun. are... Oh yeah. And if any of you uh, listeners are interested in all of this kind of thing too, um, I'm trying to think uh, the name of, I'll put it in the show notes, but there is a resource um, actually that my good friends there that are putting on the Keto Salt Lake um, have for, you don't remember the name of their website, do you, where they list all of the keto events? Um, I think it's just oh, it's low just carb events. Is, I think you might be right. It might just be low carb events. Yeah. Um, it kind of just totally escaped my brain for some reason. Um, but yeah, so you can go there and get more information on those as well as other ones. And again, I'll put the link in the web in my show notes just in case uh, in case we're off on the name. But I think you're right. I think it is just low carb events. Yeah. Um, so it's a great way to get information on where you can go and listen to more great experts uh, like Dr. Stephen Hussey here and get all this information and and try to try to get the experts 
that you can trust to give you the information instead of just searching Dr. Google because man, you'll get some crazy stuff. <laughs> you definitely will. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Stephen. I really appreciate you being on here and sharing all of this just really great and practical knowledge with my listeners. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Keto Lifestyle Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed what we shared with you today and are looking forward to the next episode. 